So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. We'll be in verses 27 to chapter 9, verse 1. So Mark 28, verses 27 all the way to 9, 1. And so you guys may not know this about me, but I am a fan of soldiers. I've never served in the armed forces, but I have watched a number of movies, though. You know, in these movies, one thing about soldiers that's striking for me is their unwavering commitment to service. We see it often, and they would, they would come, they would enlist, they would take an oath, and they'd be concerned about serving their country, and they'd be committed even to the point of death. And as I watch, I'm constantly encouraged, I'm constantly challenged, and I'm constantly inspired to serve Christ more faithfully. Seeing that scripture likens Christians to being soldiers of Christ Jesus. He is our commander and head, and we are to be committed to serving him. See, a few things similar. As Christians, we have placed our faith in Christ. We have made the good confession. We're to be concerned about the things of Christ. And we are to have an unwavering commitment to him even to the point of death. And beloved, these are some distinguishing marks of Christians that we will see in our passage this morning. And so Mark chapter 8, verse 27, on down. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd, along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then he said to them, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. You may be seated. So if you were taking notes, our big idea for this passage is Jesus is the Christ and is worthy of our lives. Jesus is the Christ and is worthy of our lives. 
Jesus is the Christ and is worthy of our life. And in this passage, we have three essential components of Christian discipleship. First, we'll see the disciples' confession. Then we'll see the disciples' concern. And third, we'll see the disciples' commitment. The disciples' confession, the disciples' concern, and the disciples' commitment. First, the disciples' confession. Look at verse 27. It says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And so Jesus, he's traveling with his disciples. They're in Caesarea Philippi, which is 25 miles north of Bethsaida. And while traveling, he asked his disciples about his reputation. You see, he has preached authoritatively. He has performed many mighty deeds. And many people have seen him and have heard him. And they have drawn a conclusion about him. And so Jesus is curious to know people's thoughts about himself. And the thing is, how one answers this question of who do people say Jesus is, is of utmost importance. You see, if there's ever a question that you need to answer correctly, it's this one. Because eternal life and death hinges upon what you believe about Jesus. Because salvation is only in him And you must believe in him for who he is in order to be saved. Well, let's see what they said. Verse 28, they answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. And so their answers are across the board. There's no consensus. Some said that he's possibly John the Baptist resurrected from the grave. And they may have said this because John and Jesus preached repentance. Others said that he's Elijah. If you study the Old Testament, you would know that in Malachi chapter 4, it speaks about how Elijah would be the forerunner for the Messiah. And so they believed that Jesus, to prepare, he was going to prepare the way for the Christ. And others said that he was one of the prophets. You see, in their minds, Jesus may be different from them, but he's no different from the prophets. And so here what we see about their answers, they have two things in common. One, they're all prophets. And two, they're all wrong. (laughs) You see, they don't know Jesus. You see, Jesus is not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He's not one of the prophets. His words and works testify to his identity that he is the Son of God. In human flesh. You see, in their minds, they think that Jesus doesn't stand out, but in reality, he's in a league of his own because he is God. You see, he's not merely a prophet, but he's the Son of God who fulfills the prophetic ministry. And yet they missed it due to their sin and spiritual blindness. You see, these were the popular opinions about Jesus in their day. And what this teaches us is that just because an opinion is popular doesn't mean that it's reliable. You see, just because an opinion is popular doesn't make it reliable. Popularity doesn't give an opinion credibility. You see, the popular opinions about Jesus in our day are just as wrong as those popular opinions about Jesus back then. 
You see, in our day, some would say that Jesus was only a prophet, that he's not God. Some would say that he's the highest created being. Some would say that he's my homeboy. Or some would say that he's this fake figure created to enslave people of color. You see, all of these popular opinions are wrong, and Satan would love for people to believe any of them because they will only result in condemnation. Because to be saved, one must know and trust Jesus for who he truly is as Scripture speaks of him. You see, we ought to not believe popular opinions concerning Jesus, but we ought to believe what God's Word says about him. Look at verse 29. He says, but you, he asked him, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah, and he strictly warned them to tell no one. You see, Jesus, he wasn't filling their answers. He didn't give any affirmation. Instead, he turns his disciples. He asked them the very same question. How would you respond? Well, Peter, on behalf of the disciples, he makes the confession of Jesus' identity. He says that Jesus is the Christ. You see, Peter makes the same confession about Jesus that Mark made in Mark chapter 1, verse 1 that he is the Christ. And in Matthew's gospel, Matthew would add that Peter said that he is the son of the living God. You see, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah is a Hebrew word for the anointed one. And the Greek word is Christ. What Peter is saying is that Jesus is God's anointed one. You see, in the Old Testament, God anointed people to serve in the office of priest, prophet, and king. They were set apart for God's service. And God also promised David, King David, that he'd have a son who would sit on his throne forever, who would rule and reign in justice and righteousness, and that there will be everlasting peace. You see, he is the messianic king who Israel anticipated and about whom the prophets prophesied. What we see is that Jesus is that person. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the Messianic king. And he didn't become the king when Peter confessed it. He wasn't voted in through an election, but he was appointed by God. He can't be dethroned, and he is the Christ whether one accepts it or rejects it. The truth will not change. You see, Peter, he confesses Jesus to be the Messiah. And y'all, this confession is huge because for a while, the disciples did not understand Jesus' identity. You see, recently, he reproved them for being, for being blind and lacking understanding. But now, they see. And the question is, how did they go from being spiritually blind to having some spiritual sight? It was the same way that we go from being spiritually blind to having spiritual sight. God, by his grace, has opened their eyes and revealed to them that Jesus is the Christ. You see, God did for them spiritually what Jesus did physically for the blind man in the previous section. And he did for them the same thing he's done for us. The Holy Spirit has caused us to be born again, opened our eyes to behold Jesus for who he truly is, given us the gift of faith to replace our faith in Jesus, and we have made the very same confession that Jesus is the Christ. 
that he is the son of the living God. You see, the disciples' confession is that Jesus is the Christ. And Christ said that he would build his church upon people who make this profession. Which is why we only add people to our congregation who make this confession and have gone public with their faith in Jesus Christ through baptism. You see, the church only consists of those who confess Jesus to be the Christ. If you don't make a confession by faith, then you are not a part of the church. You see, this question, who do you say Jesus is? It is of utmost importance. It's the most important question that we can ask and answer. And beloved, we must be clear and biblical when we answer who we say Jesus is. We must boldly confess the truth about Jesus. You see, if your coworkers, classmates, neighbors, family, or friends were to ask you, who is Jesus, what would you say? My hope and prayer is that you say what Scripture says about him, that he's the Son of God who took on human flesh, that he is the Christ, the sinless Savior who died for sins and resurrected from the grave, that he is the one who is exalted to the right hand of God and that he saves all who turn from their sin and trust in him, and that he will one day return and consummate his kingdom. Beloved, we must be ready to give this answer at all times. We must be ready to answer it. We must answer it biblically. Now, let me talk to the kids in here real quick. Children, I want you to know that the most important thing you could ever know is not what you're getting for your birthday. And it's not the correct spelling of your spelling words for your spelling test coming up. As important as that is, but that's not the most important thing for you to know. The most important thing to know is who is Jesus. Life depends on you believing that he is the son of God, that he's the only savior, that he died for sin and resurrected from the grave. If you believe that about Jesus, the Bible will say that you will be saved. So on your way home, I would encourage you to ask your parents about who Jesus is and why knowing him is so important is of the utmost importance. You see, the disciples' confession is that Jesus is the Christ. And only those who believe this about Jesus are saved. Look at verse 30. It says, and he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. You see, Jesus, he affirms Peter's confession and commands silence for the time being. Because remember, there are messianic hopes about the Messiah that he will come, that he will overthrow Rome, and that he will establish his kingdom. But Jesus ain't that kind of Messiah. He would not meet their expectations. And so he tells them to be silent. And this silence is only until after he dies and resurrects from the grave. You see, on this side of the resurrection, we are commanded to tell all people about the Lord Jesus and to call them to place their faith in him. And so we've seen the disciples' confession, but now let's look at the disciples' concern. You see, this is the turning point in Mark's gospel. 
the first section of Mark, it focuses on Jesus' identity as he performed mighty acts, as he preached authoritatively, all of us testifying that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. And this section, it culminates in Peter's confession that he is the Christ. But the second half of the book, it focuses on Jesus' purpose in coming. You see, now that the disciples know his identity, he teaches them about his purpose in coming. Look at verse 31. It says, then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. You see, this is Jesus' first of three passion predictions. And what he does is he drops a bombshell on the disciples with this prediction. You see, in his prediction, he says that his, he, he, in his prediction, he predicts that he would be humiliated, rejected, that he'd suffer, that he'd die, and that he'd, he'd be vindicated through his resurrection. And he says that all of this is a part of God's predestined plan. He says that the Son of Man must suffer many things. You see, that phrase, the Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. And it should immediately have us think about Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, where the messianic figure has divine authority and he has been given dominion. And Jesus here declares himself to be that person. He says that he must suffer many things. The suffering that he will undergo will be for the sins of his people. And Scripture says nothing about the Son of Man suffering. But it does prophesy that the Lord's servant will suffer for the sins of his people. We saw it in Isaiah chapter 53. And here, Jesus is declaring himself that he's not just the Son of Man, but he's also the suffering servant. You see, they're not two different people, but they are one and the same. Like how Superman and Clark Kent are one and the same person. Now one may wonder, well, how would this take place? Well, he makes known that he would be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. The Jewish leaders would reject him. They would consider him to be an accursed, and they deliver him up to be crucified. But that's not how the story ends. Because he will resurrect from the dead three days later. Here Jesus says that it was necessary. The question is, why is this necessary? Well, this is necessary because it must happen in order for sinners to be saved. You see, sin was committed by man, and sin brought about a separation between God and man. The penalty for sin is death, and man stands guilty before a holy and just God. And in order for us to be forgiven and saved, atonement for our sins must be made. We need one who is without sin to come and bear God's judgment in our place and for our sins in order for us to be saved. And he must resurrect from the grave, proving that he is without sin. It is necessary because Scripture prophesies that one would come and do that very work, and that person is Jesus. He is the Son of God who became man, and he lived perfectly, died for our sins, and resurrected from the grave. Isaiah chapter 53, in our scripture reading, we read it. It says, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. 
We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And Christ resurrected from the grave three days later. And all of this is according to the sovereign will of God. He came to do the will of God to save sinners. Again, verse 33. 32, my bad. It says, he spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And as he spoke, Peter wasn't feeling it. He's like, no, no, no. And so he rebukes Jesus in private about this matter. He's like, no, 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 Jesus. That is not what the Christ is supposed to do. Let me correct you on the work of Christ. And here we see Peter's arrogance. It's as if Peter himself appointed Jesus and outlined the Christ's job description. As if him and God discussed this and they're in agreement that this is actually what the Christ is supposed to do. You see, Peter, he cannot fathom the idea of the Christ being treated like a criminal. You see, in his mind and the disciples' minds, it's inconceivable for the Christ to suffer and die instead of rule and reign. And the reason why he's thinking this, because the prophets spoke often about the Messianic king coming to judge and to reign. But what they didn't know is that there would be two comings of Christ. You see, in his first coming, that he would come to save by dying for sins and he would inaugurate his kingdom. And when he returns, he will judge and consummate his kingdom. And so Peter rebukes him, being ignorant. But look how Jesus responded. Verse 33, but turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not thinking about God's concerns, but humans' concerns. You see, Jesus rebuked Peter. He says, Get behind me, Satan. He says this because Peter is functioning like Satan by trying to prevent Jesus from accomplishing the will of God. You see, Peter's rebuking of Jesus is an attempt to thwart the will of God. And Jesus will have none of this. No one will hinder him from fulfilling the will of God. You see, what Peter doesn't see is that what will happen to Jesus will result in his exaltation and the elect's salvation. You see, it is the will of God for these things to happen to Jesus. Again, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 and 11 speaks of this. It says, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. You see, this must happen. You see, no suffering, no death, no resurrection equals no salvation. There's no other way. And here we see Jesus be concerned about the will of God. And beloved, this too should be the Christian's concern. You see, as Christ followers, our concern should be God's will. We bend our will to God's will. We don't try to make Christ bend his will to ours. You see, our view of Christ needs to be aligned with who he is according to Scripture. 
and not according to our expectation. You see, this scene, it should humble us because we're prone to doing the very same thing that Peter did, thinking that we know what's best and try to correct Jesus. One may wonder, well, then how can this look like for us today? Well, as a church, it can look like man, us losing confidence in God's word and ways and think that we need to save Christianity, especially in 2021, when Christians are being pushed further on, to the margins. It's like us saying that we need to alter our message some in order so that people can be attracted to the church. That if we talk less about sin and say nothing about repentance, and then more people would believe or it's this idea that in order for us to win the world, then we need to be like the world. That holiness is out and conformity to the culture is in. Other idea may be that, man, that this is the church's moment. That if we're not speaking about you fill in the blank, that we're going to lose our influence and we'll be irrelevant. Or thinking that we need to take back our country for God as if America was ever a Christian nation, which it wasn't, or as if God has lost his sovereignty. You see, all of this is thinking about humans' concerns, not God's. And the question for us to consider is, whose concerns are you thinking about? God's or humans? A good way for us to see this is by asking whose will would you like to be done? God's or your own? Are you humbly submitting to the will of God in faith and trusting him? Or are you trying to get God to submit to your will and your ideas? You see, beloved, our concern should be about the things of God. And we should submit to God's will and have confidence in his ways faithfully preaching the gospel, loving our neighbor, being holy, and living justly. We ought to concern ourselves with God's will that is revealed in Scripture. And when our concern is off, we need God's word and we need God's people to correct us that we may repent. You see, we can easily get sidetracked. May this sober us. May it lead us to pray that we would concern ourselves about the things of God. And so we've seen the disciples' confession. We've seen the disciples' concerns. And now let's see the disciples' commitment. Look at verse 34. He says, Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You see, Jesus gives the crowd and his disciples three requirements for following him. You see, the truth is we must not only confess Jesus to be the Christ, but we must also commit ourselves to following him according to his terms. He says you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Deny yourself. What this is is this is to renounce one for being the Lord of their very own life being the Lord of their own heart. This is where your primary allegiance is to Jesus. Your life now revolves around him like planets revolving around the sun. You see, you live for him in all spheres of your life, whether it's your work, your marriage, your relationship, 
your friendships. The thing is you are to be concerned and consumed about God's will being done, not your own. He says, take up your cross. In the first century, the cross was a symbol of suffering, humiliation, and death. You see, to take up your cross is to be willing to be humiliated for Jesus because you've placed your faith and trust in him, and it's all in response to him suffering the wrath of God for our sins. You see, take up your cross should not be reduced to wearing a necklace around your neck. You see, if you were to wear it around your neck but not bear it on your back, then you are not following the Jesus of the Bible. May we take up our cross. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3 where he wants to know the fellowship of Christ's suffering becoming like him in his death. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12 and 13 says it this way. Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing his disgrace. Then he says the third requirement is to follow him. This is an ongoingly following Jesus for all our days where we pattern our life after him and we submit ourselves to his commands. These are the requirements. This is what we must do. Beloved, are you following Jesus on his terms? Are you daily denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus? When there are open doors for the gospel, are you taking it? Or are you refusing because you're only thinking about yourself? Are you silent about Christ's word and Christ's ways because you don't want to be disgraced? You see, the reality is we cannot be committed to Christ while simultaneously being committed to ourselves and our comfort. It just won't work. Which is why we must deny ourselves and take up our cross. Have a commitment to him and not our comfort. So I'll just encourage us. May we pray for one another in this. Pray that daily that we would deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. Members, this would be a great thing to pray for members as you pray through the membership directory. That we have this unwavering commitment to Jesus. Even in the face, even in the midst of facing disgrace for his name. You see, as Christians, we're to have an unwavering commitment to Christ. We're committed to him even to the point of death because he's our Lord and our Savior. You see, we bear our cross for his name in response to him bearing the cross for our sins. So may we do so. Look at verse 35. He says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. You see, here Jesus, he emphasizes the folly of not following him. You see, in this life, those who seek to save their lives will not follow Christ. They want to avoid suffering at all costs. There's an unwavering commitment to comfort, but such decision will result in eternal consequences. They will suffer God's judgment for eternity because they did not trust in Jesus. 
They'd refuse to come to the only one in whom there is salvation, to which they forfeited eternal life for a few years of ease. Then he goes on and he says, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. You see, here Jesus declares that his followers are to be committed to him to the point of death for his name and for the gospel. You see, there's an expectation that Christians will suffer for the sake of Christ. Beloved, if you are unashamedly following Jesus, then you will suffer. The New Testament speaks of this. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12 in the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are you when you are reviled and persecuted and uttered all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What he tells you to do is rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13 says, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Verse 16 says, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. If you were to study church history, you would see that Christians has always suffered for the sake of Christ. In your own time, if you don't have the book, Purchase the book Fox's Book of Martyrs, and what you will see is that Christians have been martyred since the inception of the church. You see, what we see is that following Jesus is costly, and it may cost us our very own lives. And the reason why it's so costly is because the world hates Jesus. They have persecuted him. John chapter 15, verse 20 Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You see, as we proclaim the gospel, people are confronted. Their, their sin is exposed and they see that they stand guilty before a holy and just God. And they're in need of saving. They cannot save themselves. And because people are dead in sin, some people's response would be that they would much rather kill the Christians and repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. You see, beloved, are you committed to Christ to where you are willing to suffer for him and the gospel? Because we will suffer. Whether it's a loss of a good reputation, the loss of a job, imprisonment, beatings, or death, the reality is we will suffer. And as painful as this suffering will be, we must remember that Jesus is worth it. He is worthy of all of our suffering and even our very own lives. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. You see, the Apostle Paul compared it, and he said that there's no comparison. You see, we may suffer, and the pain may be excruciating, but listen to how Paul describes it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, he says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, Paul says, what is temporary? You're suffering for the sake of Christ. 
He has what is eternal glory, being in glory with Christ for eternity. Jesus is worth it. He's worth suffering for. Beloved, have you ever really stopped to compare? Like to really compare the present day suffering for the sake of Christ to eternal glory. If you have, if you really meditated on it, you will see that there is no comparison. You will, like, without question, draw the conclusion that Jesus is worth it. So, beloved, may we be committed to Christ. May we endure to the end. May we have this unwavering commitment to him, which is the evidence of the genuineness of our confession. If we profess faith, if we confess him to be our Messiah, the genuineness is seen by us enduring to the very end in faith. Saints, may we pray for one another in this. And may we remind one another that Jesus is worth suffering for. Think at verse 36 and 37. It says, for what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? You see, again, Jesus is driving home the idea that it is stupid, the stupidity of not following him. He says, man, you can gain the whole world, but you will lose your soul. It is a terrible deal. Though the world, the flesh, and the devil will tell you that it's worth it. If you were to give in and do this, you would temporarily gain the world, but you would eternally lose your soul. And I think cognitively, we understand this. But the question for us is, would our lives testify that we're treasuring Jesus above all? Do we live as if we are trying to gain the world? A question for us to consider is, what things would tempt us to renounce Christ if we were offered them in exchange for our faith in Jesus? Or to put it another way, are there comforts that if taken away, you'd be tempted to renounce your faith in Jesus Christ? This would be good to consider and to talk with other members about. And whatever those things are, may we confess those to him and to one another and pray for one another in this and remind one another that Jesus is worth it. And if you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. I want you to know that Jesus is not speaking in hyperbole. He is not over-exaggerating. It would be foolish to refuse to trust in Jesus in order to be saved. You see, a life of ease, being your own Lord, gaining the world may sound good, but it results in judgment. The reality is, if you pursue your best life now, it will result in the worst eternity ever. So friends, I would encourage you to trust in Jesus. He offers eternal life. Turn from your sin, trust in him, believe that he's the son of God who died for sin and resurrected from the grave. You believe that message, the Bible will say that you are saved. Trust in Jesus today, friends. If you want to talk more about it, you can talk to any members after service. They would love to have this conversation with you. Look at verses 38 and 39. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. You see, Jesus, here he makes it clear that final judgment awaits those who are ashamed of him in this life. If one is embarrassed by Jesus and his words, having a commitment to comfort and refusing to confess him before man, it will inevitably result in Christ being ashamed of you when he returns in glory. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says it this way, that this saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. You see, if one were to live a lifestyle of being ashamed of Jesus in order to avoid suffering without ever repenting, what that would show is that they never followed Jesus. They will experience eternally the very thing that they try to avoid in this life. Except the suffering will not be from man, but it would be from God. Beloved, it is not worth it. It's not. See, in the third century, the governor of Asia, his name was Optimus. And he was persecuting Christians heavily going after them and killing them for their faith in Jesus. And there was a man, his name is Nicomachus. He professed faith in Christ and he was brought before Optimus and he was ordered to sacrifice to pagan idols. His faith was put to the test. He refused. And immediately he was tortured for a short period of time. Sadly, Nicomachus didn't endure the pain. He recounted his faith in Jesus. Soon afterwards, he was seized with great agony and fell to the ground and died. Such torture was public and so many people saw it. And there was this one 16-year-old girl, her name is Denisa. She witnessed it and she concluded, Oh, unhappy wretch. Why would you buy a moment's ease at the expense of a miserable eternity? Why would you buy a moment's ease at the expense of a miserable eternity? The sister was spot on. Why would you do this? It is not worth it. Now one hears this and they may think that it's easy for her to say this. Because she wasn't suffering. She was more on the sidelines instead of in the fire. Things may be different for her if she herself suffered. Well, governor, the governor Optimus, he heard about what she had said. And he called her to himself. And so her faith was put to the test. Her life was threatened. What would this young girl do? She confessed that she was a Christian. In the face of torture, 
in the face, knowing that death would be imminent. She confessed her faith in Christ. And she was beheaded for her faith in the Lord Jesus. This little girl, she lost her life for Christ and her life was saved. She said Jesus was worth it. If this little girl could come back, if she could talk to us today, she'd tell you that Jesus is worth it. That his promises are eternally sweet. That he offers life eternal and everlasting joy. And that Jesus is worth any earthly loss, even our own lives. Because when Christ returns in glory, all who trusted in him, who endured to the end, will be with him. And we'll forever sing of his worth. We'll forever testify that he is worthy. He's worthy to lose it all for. Because to die is gain. We gain him. Beloved, may we be committed to Christ. May we have this unwavering commitment to him, being willing to suffer everything for our faith in Jesus. And may we remind one another that Jesus is worth it. All the way until that day where our faith becomes sight and we see our glorious king. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we praise you for your grace in sending your son to save us. Father, we pray that we would turn our eyes from worthless things, that we would fix our gaze upon the Lord Jesus, that we would know that he is worthy of our own lives, that we would follow him all of our days by your grace. Lord, may we remind one another that Jesus is worth it. May we hasten a day longing for him to return when our faith turns to sight. And until that day, may we constantly deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Give us grace. Help us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.